0: Quantum computing, fundamentally, is the best way to process information based on the laws of physics as we know them. I had constructed what I thought of as the generalisation of the universal Turing machine. Can an astonishingly
1: powerful new realm of computation be found within the quantum world? Will researchers ever realise the goal of what they call quantum supremacy? And what would it mean for our society if they did? From its fundamental building blocks, to the ultimate goal of a truly universal quantum computer. Join me, Oxford Professor of Philosophy, Peter Millikan, as I explore this and many other questions on the Future Makers podcast, available today from wherever you listen to
0: podcasts. You're listening to the Future Tech Health podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reach the age 40... Or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career will give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello,
1: this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech, and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have uh, Michael Skinner, PhD. He's an Eastlick Distinguished uh, Professor, Center for Reproductive Biology, School of Biological Sciences at Washington State University. Um, He's also a professor of the School of Biological Sciences. Uh, He did a BS in chemistry at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. Um, And we're going to be talking about um, how environmental toxins um, affect people uh, epigenetically and sounds like uh, through multiple generations. So we'll get into that in a second. But uh, Mike, thanks for coming. How are you doing? No problem. Thanks very much. Yeah. yeah. So would would you um would you mind restating what I kind of you know barely was able to enunciate? What what is your work focus on
2: right now? Uh, so I was uh, our research over the past few decades is centered around reproductive biology, but in the uh for in the mm-hmm. let's say early two thousands, late nineteen nineties, we actually came across an observation that if you expose Uh, gestating female, that you don't simply affect the offspring, that it can be passed for multiple generations. And so this is an area called epigenetics, and we call it epigenetic transgenerational inheritance, and it has a pretty big impact on biology in general. And so our research now is really focused around that activity.
1: So are you trying to find out what kind of uh, toxins can be passed on to future generations versus not?
2: Uh, Well, it's, it's uh, so the area is called sort of environmental epigenetics, and we're interested in all exposures, and so that includes, let's say, your nutrition. Uh, If it's a plant, then it's uh, temperature and drought. Uh, There's lots of environmental factors, smoking, alcohol, Uh, and so lots of things that we are exposed to, one of which, a big class of them, are environmental toxicants, chemicals, and so forth. We have focused our, our research around the toxicants uh, because that's what we sort of started out with, and that's a big area. But on, your, on a daily level, your primary exposure is your nutrition in terms of what you're eating, right. and so and that's also been shown to induce this phenomena as well.
1: So um, if you look at all the possible insults or exposures that people have, um, what percentage of them, it's a hard question, are heritable, meaning they're going to be passed on to future generations, do you have any, any sense of that, a lot of them, a few of them?
2: Um, it's a much more of a, uh, you have to consider that in the context of your development. Uh, for example, as a fetus, uh, you're very sensitive to exposures of all kinds, and there's a good chance during fetal development that it affects your uh, sperm or egg development such that it's going to become permanent, and it'll go for multiple generations. Um if early postnatally, there's also good evidence uh, as you, even during puberty, as you become an adult, then there's less less of a chance. However, um, we have shown, and several other labs have shown, that preconception exposure, even bef- so in other words, your exposure as an adult can affect your sperm, particularly in males, but also in the female oh. too, uh, such that when you conceive, then your your offspring or the early fetus has a shift in its epigenetics too, because you're affecting your sperm and egg. So it's it's um, it's become much more prevalent than we realized. And in fact, everybody's that's pretty much uh, dozens of labs that have tested it, they've generally found transgenerational inheritance.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I thought about. Um, I guess men make new sperm every two days, but right. women's yep. eggs supposedly are there. Their lifetime. So, does that mean that women will be more susceptible to, you know, environmental or nutritional insults over time because they it's the same cell that is suffering the, you know, the toxic load or the, the you know, the irritants or the pollutants versus men's sperm that get regenerated every two days and maybe they're
2: less resistant or more resistant to uh, to problems. So it's sort of the opposite. Um, so essentially, because men. Uh, sort of turn over their sperm fairly quickly. So let's say 250 million sperm get turned over uh, within a few days. There's a stem cell in the male testis called the spermatogonia, And those sit there and they, they're the stem cells that generate all these sperm that are sort of being generated. <clears throat> so essentially what happens is if the environmental sort of exposure alters the epigenetics in that stem cell then all the sperm subsequently generated will have that shift from then on. And so essentially, mm-hmm. the males, so far in the literature, it suggests that they're more sensitive to these things uh, because there's such active cell division. Now, the females, essentially, when they're born, during the fetal development, the eggs started to develop, and then it basically sort of stops developing. And it gets locked in this uh, certain stage of uh, cell division, and it sits there. And then when the, when the female is born, they have all the eggs they're going to generate for the rest of their life, but the eggs are relatively quiescent. They're not dividing. They're not growing. Uh, they're active in terms of survival, but they're not doing much in that sense until there's a, there's a spontaneous sort of signal for them to develop and ovulate. And that occurs throughout sort of normal reproductive life. So evolutionarily, what's happened is it appears that the eggs have developed an ability to protect themselves from environmental exposure. And so when we look and see, the eggs are fairly stable, and they're much more resistant to these environmental things than the male is. So it's sort of the opposite um, uh, in terms of gametes. Uh, However, the females that are pregnant, the fetus is probably the most sensitive, so it's a little bit of a female orientation in terms of the pregnant, pregnant mother, uh, because that fetal development is very, very active.
1: So are these, uh, you know, if we're talking about men, let's say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 25 years old and I start smoking and then I smoke for a year and I stop. And then when I'm 27, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I, I conceive with my wife and then we have a child. Do you think the damage of the smoking is, let's say, reversible if it stops for a period of time? or you know, are a lot of these changes, these epigenetic changes permanent? Any characterization there?
2: So um, there is evidence for smoking promoting transgenerational inheritance. Uh, so far, there's not been, there's a little bit of evidence in humans, uh, which I can go through in detail. But there's a reasonable amount of studies in rodents, which shows that it becomes transgenerational. There was a, now in terms of the time of smoking, um there's some information showing that smoking during pubertal period, early to earlier life, will actually be much more detrimental to p- permanently programming your sperm, such that later in life, essentially, you're going to have passed on these sort of effects. If you were smoking as an adult, like, let's say, 25 or 30 years old for just a few years, and then basically tried to conceive five years later, there's less information on that. Um, however, essentially, that... We, there is evidence that smoking can affect your germline, and so but I've not seen any any studies to show how what's the duration that I think if you only did it for a year and then stopped I, I just don't I can't answer that question uh, because mm. it's not been really done
1: has anyone tried to do um, epigenetic breeding meaning uh, you know deliberately having the males of a certain species do X y and z right before they you know they're gonna you know, mate with the female to deliberately sure, sure. create children of a certain way and, and selectively breed multiple generations along a path and see if the if you're doing it based on epigenetic changes, uh if you get a different kind of creature. Sure.
2: Um it's not been done it's been done, but it's mostly been done to see what the phenotypes of the offspring are gonna be generationally. It's not like we can predict per se that this is going to happen, and so we'll do breeding to sort of try to get this or that. Um, But they have done the experiments to show that, you know, if you basically have an exposure, you know that what's going forward, you can either crossbreed with something else and basically see a disease developing. It's not predictive enough yet to sort of try to do it intentionally type thing. The most uh, uh, where that's sort of been done for male exposure is either caloric restriction Um, or high-fat diets, particularly high-fat diets. So if a male has a high-fat diet, is obese, and even if it's not obese, if they're on a high-fat diet, then essentially they can pass metabolic characteristics to their offspring, particularly in this case the male has an ability to transfer metabolic sort of activity or abnormalities to the female offspring. And then they will develop metabolic disease as they grow up, and that gets passed to subsequent generations as well through the female. And hmm. so, but it's not really a predictive thing yet. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, within the next five to 10 years, we start doing those little more predictive sort of things, but we just don't have enough baseline information yet to make the predictions.
1: Yeah, to you, what are the most surprising uh, you know, epigenetically heritable changes that, that you've observed?
2: Well... The surprising thing is that it occurs. <laughs> in other words, wow. so um, you have to realize when we first published the first paper on this back in uh, 2005, um, and we basically had been doing studies for five or six years before we published because it was such a out-of-the-box phenomenon, I wanted to make sure it was real. But essentially, what we're, just, what we're describing and discussing is a non-genetic form of inheritance. Previously, and the most predominant paradigm is that inheritance only occurs through genetics and the DNA sequence. To have the ability of the environment to change epigenetic marks on the DNA without influencing sequence and that would become heritable was a major shift in how we think biology works. And, and we didn't really and there was a lot of opposition initially because there were people just outright knee-jerk reaction against the concept because it didn't fit genetics. Hmm. And so, um, so that's the, really the surprising thing. Now, subsequently, if you think about the fact that the environment has an ability to influence your, how your DNA works, independent of sequence, and can change the phenotypes or the traits that you have, this impacts pretty much all of biology. Has a very significant yeah. impact on evolution. Has a big impact on where we think disease may come from. This could, this really does change the idea of it simply being a genetic-centric sort of view of just your DNA sequence. To so a much broader view where the environment has to be considered as well, and which we really didn't do in the past.
1: Yeah, because I had recently read a book on epigenetics, and uh, I guess the theory was that, you know, for instance, when sperm and egg Combined, um all the past epigenetic marks are wiped out, and none of them survive that. But it sounds like uh, some do.
2: Right. Yeah, and so the, the evol- uh, evolutionarily, we've developed uh, a couple of times during development where uh, one of the things that we study and that's, that you're mentioning is called DNA methylation. These are small chemical groups, methyl groups, get, get attached to the DNA sequence at a very, very specific site. And that basically <clears throat> has the ability to turn genes on and off, depending on where the sites are and the level of DNA methylation. And so it has a major impact on how the DNA functions. Okay? And so the environment now we know has the ability to change that methylation patterning to then cause the effect. So during development, what happens with, say, when an egg and a sperm come together at fertilization, one of the first things that happens after a cell division or two the DNA methylation starts to get erased and removed. So after about four or five cell divisions, there's a much lower level of DNA methylation. It's not zero, but it's much lower level. And that's thought to reset the epigenome, or the genome, so that essentially those previous things got erased, okay? And then as the the embryo starts to develop from there, then essentially that will drive the, the epigenetic development of all the different cell types, okay? So That's sort of the general sort of reset. However, there is a set of genes that's been known since the 90s that actually are protected from that DNA methylation erasure, and those are called imprinted genes. And we know, we knew back in the 90s that there were about a hundred of these imprinted sites, and those don't, those are protected, and they go keep going because of that from generation to generation. All right. So what what appears, what we've done is induce the appearance of a whole bunch of new imprinted-like sites. Which then are protected from this erasure, and they get passed from generation to generation. So the concept that everything is reset was sort of an overinterpretation. There is there is a lot of resetting going on for development, but it's not simply complete. And these imprinted sites are an example of sites that are protected from that. Yeah, that's why I think it'll be you know it's not going to be so
1: simple as a table, but it'll be interesting to characterize which uh, which things tend to be heritable and which things aren't which things survive that, you know, the process and which things don't.
2: Yeah. And so what we what we, we see, uh, there's a couple of things that this phenomenon starts to help us understand. OK, so right now, if you think about it, you have over 250 cell types in your body. Your you know, your neuron is one, your hepatocyte in your liver is another cardiac sort of epithelial. So there's 200 different cell types or over 200. Yet every single cell type has exactly the same DNA sequence in it. So how come, if if it was all genetics, how come we have 250 cell types? What makes them different? Uh Well, it turns out the epigenetics, the DNA methylation, the small non-coding RNAs, all of that epigenetics is completely different for each cell type. So what drives the cell specificity is the epigenetics, not the genetics. The epigenetics impacts the genetics and what genes are on and off. And so that's what gives us that cell specificity. Now, if you change or alter that epigenetics, guess what? You develop abnormal cell types that are associated with disease later in life and so forth. So now that we know this occurs, we get a better understanding of how environment can actually influence all this and how come an early life exposure when you're a fetus or early postnatally can actually cause disease when you're in your 50s and 60s and it's because of these epigenetic shifts.
1: So an epigenetic change doesn't necessarily have to change the underlying DNA in order for the person
2: to be phenotypically different,
1: in order for the person to be
2: very different. Correct. So in other words, if you shifted the epigenetics, even though the DNA sequence is exactly the same, you could turn off and turn on a whole set of genes that are completely different with no change in DNA sequence. So it, it turns out that What what we're talking about is a concept that developed in biology over the past 100, 120 years now, and it's called genetic determinism. The idea was that the DNA sequence uh, drives biology. In other words, your sequence derived what genes are there, what genes are on and off, and so forth. It was all a genetic-based idea, okay? And and that's called genetic determinism. This is where lots of things and current things we think about today, like the concept of the selfish gene and all sorts of stuff is all based on just genetics. Well, huh. what it, what that did is it completely removed the environment from the equation because the environment can't change genetics or can't change the DNA sequence. And so we just stopped worrying about the environment. And there's lots of biology sort of around this that basically was set aside because it didn't fit this genetic determinism. well, Now what we realize is there's this whole other layer of control called epigenetics, these chemical marks on the DNA, these small non-coding RNAs, these small pieces of RNA that have major functions in the cell, how the loops and coils of DNA can actually change the expression without changing the sequence. There's all this epigenetics that controls that genetics, basically. controls how the genes are turned on and off. So now we need to revise that concept because it's not just genetics, it's a combination of epigenetics and genetics. And if you put those together, we have a much better understanding of how things work, from everything from evolution to where disease comes from. And so with, with that in mind, what we see is now, it's going to be the biggest paradigm shift in the biological sciences, is the concept that we move away from genetic determinism towards a combination of epigenetics and genetics. Have um um
1: have we seen an example where epigenetic changes um pile up and lead to speciation yes you know, if, if i if, if i'm the offspring and i've been you know my epigenetics are different than my parents then i'm going to react to my environment differently anyway because now i'm I'm different and then right. if my offspring may be further different further different further you know again have we seen maybe with fruit flies i don't know some other species mm-hmm. that you know breeds frequently have we seen that epigenetics lead to underlying rearrangements of the DNA itself? Or speciation?
2: Sure. So we did a, a few of the first studies in that area because we sort of came across this earlier. So when we started doing this, it was geared towards environmental toxicants and disease. But early on, I realized that this could have a significant impact on evolution. So what I did is I contacted a colleague at the University of Utah called Dale Clayton, and he had been studying Darwin Finches. And if you're going to do something in evolution, you want to get everybody's attention, you study Darwin finches down in the Galapagos. Mm. So we went down and we actually collected a number of different species of Darwin finches. Okay, Now, Darwin finches is one of the examples. There's 16 species of Darwin finches, and they've literally developed over the last million and a half to two million years, all 16 species. That seems like a long time, but in an evolution context, that's actually pretty soon cool, pretty That's a rapid evolutionary event. Okay. Yeah. So we went down and grabbed the, we we got six different species, different species of Darwin finches, collected little blood samples through the vein and the wing and basically collect them, then let the animals go, and looked at the DNA that was in the red blood cells. And what we did is what we compared the epigenetics and we also looked at genetic variation as well. And what we found was the epigenetics or there was genetic variation. And it was coined up and down. There were small amounts of epigenetic epigen- variation between the species. But we also saw a linear association in the, in the phylogenetic tree with the, with the uh, Darwin finches of an increasing level of, of, of epigenetic changes from a reference species. There was uh, about 10 times more than the genetic changes, and it was, it was a directly linear association. What this showed us is that the phylogenetic association and the speciation was as much to do with ge- epigenetics as it was the genetics. And then oh. following year, we actually had an example in the Galapagos that another investigator actually had observed quite a while ago, five, ten years ago. And what it is is the Darwin finch don't migrate. So they're literally, when they're born, within two or 300 yards of where they were born, they actually stay and nest and they live there. So there's no moving around per se, okay? So this uh, investigator found that there's this little town on one of the islands in the Galapagos where uh, the town developed. <clears throat> and so what, what he started to observe is there were several different species of Darwin finches that were resident in the town. Their phenotypes started changing. So they got slightly different beak structures, color structures, metabolism, size, all those phenotypes, those characteristics were starting to change. So we went out to a wild, sort of natural site that was about 40 miles away, 40 kilometers away, I guess. And so, essentially, collected sort of the more native wild sort of birds and did the analysis. Same species, and then we went into town and got the same species that were living in this urban environment. And they lived there for close to 25, 30 years. So that was more than 10 generations of sort of, of, of. passage or gener- uh, inheritance and what we found was if we looked at the genetics there was no difference between the two different sites but the epigenetics was dramatically different between the sites and so essentially it supported the concept that environmental epigenetics can drive this, the shifts in the phenotypes independent of the genetics so those mm-hmm. that suggested that the speciation that potentially might occur over time can be driven by environmental epigenetics and this really does fit a concept where <clears throat> if a if you had two uh, populations of the same species and there was a major sort of event where the environment was completely different for one versus the other maybe it went from a cold environment to a very warm isolated environment and foodstuffs that they worked that they would survive on and so forth was shift that eventually over time you could develop a speciation event and that's exactly what this suggested with using the Darwin finches since then A number of investigators have taken a wide variety of different species and done the same type of thing and are seeing the same issue where there's these epigenetic shifts. And so, yes, I think what what we find is in speciation, environmental epigenetics plays an equally important role as any genetic change.
1: But have we yet seen the appearance of a new species? And when I say species, I mean it can't breed with the species that it came from. Have we seen that much of a difference? happen yet we've seen phenotypical changes but but how different has it gotten
2: so there have not it's because the time it takes to get a speciation event well all we can do is like the darwin finch we take different species that are we know exist and then we look at the shifts in the phenotypes in those okay we can do this in some different species but no one has really yet tried to do uh, speciation in a finite period of time you could do that in some of the other organisms like potentially Drosophila or the, the fly Drosophila or a, a worm sort of thing like C. elegans and sort of see if you get a speciation event uh, because there's a really rapid and short short lineage or generational time and you get, it's a really rapid experiment and go out hundreds, of, hundreds and hundreds of generations and see what happens. But so far, nobody's really done that yet. But the evidence that that is coming in from the literature is if they see these phenotypic shifts like we've seen with the Darwin-Finch that I gave you the example of, basically we're finding the epigenetics is what's correlating with those phenotypic sort of things, which eventually would lead to a, mm. it. To a phen- now, what I've just talked about, for evolution people, this is a big shift. Previously, Darwin proposed this concept of natural selection, where the environment acts on a population that has sort of variation in both its phenotypes, and then more modern, we think it's also a variation in the e- genetics. And so then there's a natural selection event, and a subpopulation will survive, and the rest will die, and that will drive this evolutionary process. So this is called natural selection. Right. Neo-Darwinian evolution was back in the early 1900s. They said, well, if you shift the genetics, the DNA sequence, then that will drive that, the population variation that we're looking at. Okay, so uh, and so it's sort of now a more of a neo darwinian where genetics is driving this response to natural selection. Now, Lamarck, 50 years before Darwin proposed his theory, proposed a theory of evolution that was slightly different. And there were several people at the same time that were starting that process. But Lamarck actually proposed that here's an environmental stimulus which acts on the organism that can change the phenotype in a heritable manner it's inherited so essentially what we're talking about is a neo-lamarckian concept where the environment can drive something like epigenetics change the phenotype and it's heritable it's inherited and that then will have a major role in that phenotypic that trait variation it increases the variation and now we actually know it increase it alters the genetics as well such that Mm -hmm. when natural selection acts it's facilitated so this is a neo-Lamarckian concept that facilitates Darwinian evolution. That is a big shift in how we think evolution works. And there's a little bit of opposition to that because what's been in place for so long to shift that is, is sort of a big big deal. But the, but the experiments we have done and others have done is starting to tell us that this is why the, this is how a rapid evolutionary event can occur. It also gives us more control of the environment over the evolutionary path process.
1: So why do you you think that speciation takes so long, so long, millions of years? I don't know. I mean, is it because that it just takes time and a certain number of generations to create enough epigenetic changes that pile on top of each other to eventually diverge this new creature from the previous species? Is that why? And maybe that takes, you know, hundreds of generations or thousands or millions of years?
2: Sure. So um, I think what we see fairly quickly, just like I say, in the human population, okay, and you go around the world, there's some areas which have very specific phenotypes, traits associated with the human population, okay? And what we've seen over time is we have these subpopulations with lots of very different traits. However, we're all the same species still, okay? If this was to go, go farther and we were to isolate these species, you know the subpopulation, and over a long period of time other sort of environmental and such that your reproductive processes would shift such that this species wouldn't be able or this population wouldn't be able to cross fertilize this population such that you have a new species so essentially it's a matter of a time commitment to actually get those phenotypes to shift the reproductive process and uh, reproductive biology Uh, and basically keeping things really isolated, which really in the human population on Earth, that's just not going to happen very easily. If we went to other planets and so forth, and we were separated by thousands of years, then probably we would get to that kind of a level of a shift. But so it just takes Mm -hmm. time, the more complex the organism, for that kind of a to occur. More simple organisms Mm -hmm. can actually do it much quicker. And so I think the evidence is probably going to come from simple organisms that basically shift their, have a short generational time, and we can do those types of experiments. But so far, uh, I'm not aware of any of those types of things going on yet.
1: Is that because of a lack of interest or a lack of belief that it'll actually work? Or, you know?
2: Well, I think evolutionary biologists for over 100 years would have loved to have had a model that they could get put in place where they could drive like a speciation event. Okay. And I think their their efforts had shown that essentially it's very stable and it takes a lot more time to actually get that to occur. In addition, they didn't know about this environmental sort of epigenetics, and so there weren't really sort of environmental shifts. In the plant sort of field, there's a few examples of such things sort of developing. Um, in uh, lower sort of organism or sort of organisms and more single cell sort of things you can sort of you, there's there's evidence that that kind of thing's going on but in complex organism like a mammal or something we're just not there yet
1: you know you, know, you, you talk about these uh these epigenetic changes usually in a negative context you know a like toxicant etc why mm-hmm. why aren't there more examples of positive changes or are they just not needed you know is the current state of let's say, humans in our environment, is that optimized to the point where it's not likely to improve, it's just likely to be best adapted to current conditions. So it would take a big change in conditions for us to adapt. Otherwise, there's no, I guess, drive to do it. And maybe that's why there's there's very few positive changes because maybe we're optimized or other creatures are optimized for the current environment they're in. I don't know.
2: Well, so in our studies, we do see... So, uh, interesting phenotypes. So yes, we'll take an environmental toxicant, okay, like DDT, okay, um, or let's say this fungicide been or something, this agricultural fungicide been So we just promote this transgenerational effect. So three or four generations later, we have these phenotypes that we're looking at, these traits. And so essentially what we find is, yes, most of the animals will start to develop increased disease frequencies and so forth from those exposures. Um, but some of those traits that we look at are, it's easy to see a negative thing. It's much harder to see a positive thing. But let me just give you an example. So when we start looking at behavior in the animal, and we study, we study rats, we can look at the behavior in the rat sort of situation. What we find is the females develop oftentimes an increased level of anxiety. Okay. Overall, like 90% of the females have an increased level of anxiety. Uh, the males, however, have a decreased level of anxiety there, and they're higher risk takers. Okay, and so that's just the traits we see in a number of different examples. We see this of where the majority of the animals have it. So, in a normal and so evolutionarily, in certain settings, having an increased being an increased risk taker and a lower level of anxiety, certainly could be considered a positive phenotype. So, in in our society today, what do we see from The 1950s and 60s versus today, we see people jumping off mountains with skis. We see lots of sort of higher risk-taking sort of activities. And could it be that from the 1950s to today, that's what's sort of being put in place, this lower level anxiety and higher risk-taking? Now, whether that's a positive phenotype or a negative phenotype, it's probably more your interpretation but essentially I think there are changes going on even in humans where these types of shifts are, are could be observed and that's the sort of thing we see in our animals. Now on the flip side what we always have had was approximately 10 to 15% of our population of animals never develop disease. They're basically resistant to any change. We haven't studied those animals carefully uh, but essentially a lack of disease and having a subpopulation that has this phenotype that it's resistant to all these things could be definitely a positive positive uh, uh, sort of characteristic. So it's just that we probably haven't studied the phenomena long enough to sort of pull those positive things in yet we're we're still in the in the stage of describing that the phenomena still that exists, and there's lots of people doing this in different model systems and so forth. but I think we'll get to eventually. The question of what are what are the positive phenotypes that we're seeing we just haven't got there yet, maybe um I guess it's you know they say necessity is the mother of invention, so
1: I guess adversity is the mother of uh, of epigenetic change, so I guess you know let's say if um again, if I smoke and it affects my children and children's children, it affects you know two to three generations of my offspring, eventually, if they don't smoke the uh the negative consequence seems to go away, is that right? Uh, you mean then I mean subsequent generations don't smoke? Yeah, if sub you know if I smoke I affect again the next few generations but the subsequent generations don't smoke do we see a regression do we see a uh, you know uh, an unwinding of the negative uh, phenotype due to the smoking after a certain number of generations.
2: Smoking we haven't they haven't studied that type of thing but so well, let me give you a couple examples. In plants um this is kind of a cool experiment. So about 250 years ago, uh, there was a fellow named Linnaeus, uh, in, uh, <clears throat> but Linnaeus was one of the first true botanists, and he studied this concept called taxonomy, discovered that. Okay? So Linnaeus uh, was also the first one to, to store these plants for a long period of time. So Linnaeus was, did an experiment where he did a heat exposure to a plant, a flowering plant, and what he found was he did a heat exposure, and the next generation had a completely different sort of flowering phenotype. And he carried it out a couple generations and studied that, and he kept the plants. So it was an interesting environmental change that was observed. And uh, around 2000, uh, an investigator actually, that plant had been propagated for since that 250 years ago. And so essentially well over 100 generations, the same phenotype was there. So he went in and actually pulled that out and found, <clears throat> by looking at the flowering phenotype <coughs> excuse me an epigenetic change in that flowering t- phenotype, and because Linnaeus had kept the first series of plants, he went back and got a sample and actually showed that the same epigenetic uh, change had occurred there. It was a DNA methylation change. And so that showed an example in plants going out a 100 generations. And so this phenomenon doesn't really go away necessarily and that same sort of phenomena has been shown in fruit flies uh which basically a wing structure change it goes like hundreds if not a thousand generations and the same thing for in in c elegans it being carried forward over 50 sort of generations in mammals it's very difficult to do those long term experiments we get it out to sort of five or six generations we still see the phenotype but it's really hard to get it out to certainly a hundred um but part of the activity is now in several labs is to take this out as far as we can what in general we don't see is things disappearing okay so it's not like the epigenetic inheritance isn't stable it actually is very stable however mm. your experience in subsequent generations your diet what you're doing in your subsequent generations what new things you're exposed to or whatever can actually counterbalance things such that the overall phenotypes gets changed and so those are things we're just starting to get a feel for um so it's this is this is kind of uh, where I usually sort of step up and say uh, this is pretty doom and gloom. Your and your great grandparents basically got this exposure. It's going to potentially affect your disease condition, and you're going to pass it on to your great grandkids. And there's not a, potentially a whole lot we can do. And so that's pretty doom and gloom. So, well, however,
1: uh, maybe that underlines the importance of looking for ways to positively to genetically change yourself, sure, sure. Not just to undo the stuff, but to put you and your descendants in a better direction.
2: Why not sure. look for that? Yeah, no, I I suspect that, like I said, you're you're absolutely right. So what what our parents were exposed to is in the '50s, '60s, and '70s basically will affect you know the grandparents or the grandkids in the next uh, now and in the next decade or so. And if they actually change their characteristics today, if we clean up our environment a little bit, potentially things could get shifted. Okay. Now, the positive side, however, that I'm going to tell you is a little bit different. So, essentially, we now know this stuff is occurring, these phenomena is occurring. So, essentially, we know that there's these specific epigenetic changes that are linked to these phenotypes. So, I can go in right now and we've done this in animal models and we're now starting to do it in humans where we can show that this disease directly correlates in a very high frequency event with this shift of a set of epigenetic changes, these DNA methylation modifications at very specific sites in the genome. And we've done this now with several different diseases to the point where what I would suggest we're going to have is in the future when you're in in your 20s, you're going to actually go in and get your epigenome mapped and we'll map these epigenome sort of changes and see what kind of correlations we have with various diseases such that you know now that you're susceptible to get, let's say, cancer or arthritis or something later in life. You won't develop it in your 20s, but when you're in your 50s and 60s, you will, okay? Well, it turns out today we don't have those types of molecular markers. We tried to do it with genetics, but it's to a degree has failed. The frequency of these genetic changes is so low Generally, it's less than 1% of population with the disease that has a correlated genetic change. So the majority don't have that correlation. But in epigenetics, what we see is the majority actually do have these epigenetic shifts, at least in our animal models. So <clears throat> because that, we know that you, we use these diagnostics, this would allow preventative medicine to occur. So in other words, you, would, you, could, you could change your diet, your nutrition, and all that sort of stuff, your exercise, everything else, to help prevent this disease from developing later in life. But we also have a whole series of therapeutic treatments that potentially can be preventative. So the best example is, let's say, with breast cancer. Breast cancer has hundreds of sort of therapeutics that have been developed, and there's a dozen or so that are fairly effective to actually treat breast cancer. Uh, But a a couple of them aren't that great. Like One of them that is well used now is called tamoxifen. Tamoxifen is a compound that was used to try to treat breast cancer, but it's not really efficient once the disease develops. Now, however, if you actually took tamoxifen for a short period of time, maybe three or four years in your 30s, you they've actually starting to understand that this will delay the onset of the breast cancer by maybe 10 or 15 years and or prevent it later in life. That's called a preventative therapeutic. The problem is
0: we don't know who to give
2: it to in terms of which women were actually susceptible for breast cancer on a molecular level. So with epigenetics, we might be able to do that. So essentially in the future, this is going to really revolutionize medicine in the sense we'll become more of a preventative medicine strategy to try to uh, fix those things later on. So we may not be able to fix the problem of environmental epigenetics, but we may be able to treat it through these preventative approaches, at least for a human disease, basically. And so that's the positive side. Just knowing this exists allows us a whole new sort of approach to medicine. We'll become less reactionary medicine and move to a more preventative medicine.
1: Okay. Can, can we uh, epigenetically, and I guess the word's not sequence, but profile someone? Can we do that? And, and have there been studies that have looked at the epigenetic profile of a creature and how it changes over time?
2: Okay, so yes, we can epigenetically profile an organism, and we do this all the time, so when we do the analysis, like our rat studies to look at these environmental chemicals we we we're we're essentially profiling their entire epigenome when we do the analysis to show the epigenetic changes, okay, so yes, you can do that, but you remember, I told you there's two hundred and fifty cell types in your body, and every That's cell right, they're all different yeah. different you cannot use a mixed cell population. So normally you try to use Mm -hmm. blood, but there's 25 different cell types in blood. So if you have subtle shifts in the blood populations, you won't get a a reliable answer. So you have to use a purified Mm -hmm. cell type, and that's what we usually use. So if we do a sperm analysis, it's purified sperm. In humans, Mm -hmm. the easiest cell to use is a buccal cell, your cheek cell, because that's about 98% pure when you actually collect it. And so essentially you can do that. It's just, we have to shift away from this concept that it's going to be a blood analysis. It's not. We're going to have to ch- use purified cells. If you do that, then yes, you can get a good profile in terms of a correlation. Okay. And so essentially, yes, I think the technology is there to do that. It will be improving, improving overall. And what we find that's different from epigenetics and genetics is genetics, as I mentioned, the DNA sequence mutations are very a low-frequency event. They're very rare. And so in terms of its correlation, whereas instead of the epigenetics, has a really high correlation, uh, where in our our situation, every 100% of the animals with a specific disease has a shift in this specific set of epigenetic marks, and it's in every single animal. So I think it's going to be eventually a better diagnostic for disease for us to move forward than genetics. Not that the fact that genetics isn't important, it's actually critical. It just doesn't have the changes that can be as use, useful as the epigenetic.
1: Right. So I guess this would be impossible to do in a person because of all the different cell types, but I, I don't know. What if, what if you took uh, someone's cells and you made them into, uh, you know, induced pluripotent cells and then differentiated them along each pathway they possibly could take to make all the tissue types or all the cell types and then profiled each epigenetically? Well, well a, yeah.
2: No now essentially what what you need um is a marker cell, okay? <clears throat> so if there's this if you're inheriting this epigenetics, okay, that affects if you let's say through this the only way you're gonna inherit anything from your parents or your, you know, grandparents sort of X or anything like that is gonna be through the sperm and the egg. No other cell provides any kind of inheritance process on a molecular level from one generation to the next. All right? So when we do, when we find that the sperm or the egg has this shifted epigenetics, essentially the the next organism or the the offspring will basically have this uh, essentially effect, such that the early embryo, you have these stem cells in the early embryo, called an embryonic stem cell. This provides the basis for every cell type in that organism. So as those start to develop, that develops everything from your brain to your foot essentially every cell type comes from that embryonic stem cell so if if the sperm or egg has a shifted epigenetics then essentially this the embryonic stem cell will have a shifted epigenetics and a shifted transcriptome a gene expression so every cell type basically has this shift in your subsequent population and then when that individual produces and goes through the for the sperm or the egg the same sort of thing happens to the next generation. So that means every cell in your body has been affected because it started very in the very beginning of embryogenesis. All right? What that means is you just need a marker cell. And so your buccal cell, your cheek cell, because of the epigenetic shift, if you're susceptible for breast cancer, potentially there's a mark in there. It's going to tell you that, even though it has nothing to do with the breast cancer, but that mark of that early effect is there. And so essentially... Oh, it, I, I thought that
1: the epigenetic marks occur as the cells differentiate. Uh, are they predictive from just the uh, the initial sperm or egg cell? We
2: can get a predictive thing from the sperm and the egg cell, but you can also get it early in life from a purified somatic cell like a buccal cell as well and so or some uh, you purify a cell like we've done monocytes from the blood so essentially you can take it at any stage of development you're going to have a shift in the epigenetics and so so essentially you're going to basically use that as a marker cell a biomarker uh of a variety of different diseases that may develop later in life
1: yeah because if if you know if i take a cell from my cheek now you know i'm an adult i mean it's First of all, it's differentiated. Second of all, it has whatever epigenetic marks it has. But how would you know what what the other cell types in my body, what markers they have, what what they have accumulated? How would you figure that out? Or if you took a sperm cell of
2: mine, how would you figure it out? If you took, let's say, a 1,000 women with breast cancer, okay, and you did the epigenetics on their cheek cell, the buccal cell, uh more than likely, because this is what we started, or started seeing, there's going to be an epigenetic signature that correlates with all uh, of those individuals. Now, if you take the, go to the control population, you don't have that signature. All of a sudden, you have a diagnostic for the susceptibility to develop breast cancer. Early in life, you have the same signature when you're in your 20s. Do you know what I mean? So you've, you, what you've done initially is reprogram and shifted to epigenetics. And because of that, now you have certain susceptibilities later in life to develop disease. And the marker cell is simply telling you that there's that shift. It's not involved in the disease development itself. It is, it is the mammary epithelial cell in the, ma- in the mammary gland has this shift that basically is potentially causal in the onset of the breast cancer. But it, it's different from what's going on in your buccal cell. So you're, you're simply oh, using yeah. the diagnostic. To sort of say, here's the susceptibility for this particular particular disease. We've done it with a series of different uh, somatic cell types, and we've done it with the sperm as well. So okay. So if I'm exposed, if I'm exposed to, I'm
1: just smoking again. Okay. If I'm exposed to smoke, all the cells in my body, you you you're saying, will undergo an epigenetic change, but because of the particular gene expression, the different cell types, only certain types will be affected in an outsized
2: way. Yet they will all be Affected and changed epigenetically somewhat? So it's not your smoking. If you, let's say you smoked as a teenager for most of your teenager years, okay? What that's going to do is potentially change that stem cell for the sperm that's in the testis, okay? So the the sperm being produced by the testis now have a shift in their epigenetics and it's programmed and it'll be there for the rest of your life. When you have a child, And that sperm now carries forward to the next generation, that change in the epigenetics. Your children and your grandchildren will now have this shift in every cell in their body. And it's linked to that exposure that your grandparents had. So then that's when it's going through the sperm, it's changing the early embryo, and now all the cell types have this shift. And different susceptibilities will develop in disease later in life. That's what we're potentially diagnosing. So it's not in you what you are exposed to, it's in your children and grandchildren.
1: But is that what you see, that even in the offspring that every cell is affected, even though it will differentiate subsequently and it will they'll all have different epigenetic marks and everything, they're still all affected in some way?
2: So we've looked at eight purified cell types, from the prostate, testis, ovary, the buccal cells, a number of different tissues. And yes, in every single one, we see an epigenetic shift that's very consistent within that cell population. However, the epigenetic shifts are completely different between the cell types.
1: But somehow there's an underlying
2: signal that says that they were all affected by, they're all affected differently, but they're all affected. Well, essentially, this is the way you think about it. So if there's an epigenetic shift in the mammary epithelial cell, okay? Right. And there's a correlation with the development uh, then later in life with the breast cancer. The other cell types are carrying with it a set of marks due to that shift that you can use to correlate with the onset of the breast cancer, and that's what we do with the buccal cell. And so essentially, that's what we're in the process of doing. In the animal models, we've we've sort of shown this, and we're starting to do it in humans as well. So I think we will see a basically biomarker set, put it forward, uh, to assess susceptibility later in life. With those that information, then we can institute this sort of preventative medicine with preventative therapeutics, like the tamoxifen, as an example, or lifestyle changes, which will actually suppress it as well. So I think we're going to move, change the sort of the how we do medicine in the future by incorporating environmental epigenetics into it.
1: Okay.
2: Well, that makes the job easier, I guess. So, hmm. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's so easy, it's, but it's good for us to have well, a Easier. Future, right. Easier. Huh. So, okay.
1: All right. Well, I don't mean to question you to death about it, but it's just, it's really fascinating. Oh, no, 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 no. it's, it's, it's fine. It's fine. Well, all right. Well, um, well, I guess, you know, our time is, uh, I want to respect your time. So we're, you know, we're coming up in an hour. I guess our time's up, but we're, for people that are interested, how do they start making the journey of learning all the underpinnings they'll need to know to understand this stuff and the implications for them and their family and their health? And what what are some recommendations for people to start learning more?
2: Um, so Uh, An easy one is they can go to my lab's website, Uh, it's uh, www.skinner.wsu.edu, and essentially we have under press and public uh, a whole series sort of educational sort of things, lots of individual papers that have come out, but in there it's probably, I've done maybe four to six documentaries, also TED Talks and so forth, and so those are really designed for the public to actually get access to sort of general information. And so that'll that'll be a start and it's straightforward. But there's lots of now general, lots of sort of books that people have written on epigenetics that starts the process and so forth. So I think there's lots of, you know, sort of resources out there, but I, if they go and look at some of these documentaries, they'll get what we've talked about essentially in more detail.
1: Okay, and then uh, last question, What? What experiments are you working on, or that you hope to do? That just would—I mean, you're, you're like super excited to see the results of. What, what do you would be thrilled to have happen in the next few years uh, that comes from your research or other people's research?
2: So yeah, sure. So we we continue to do experiments like the one that was published a few weeks ago on glyphosate because it's an environmental toxicant. Mm very very relevant to human exposures we get glyphosate Mm -hmm. which is the the number one sort of pesticide used worldwide in agriculture it's not because of the spraying but that compound gets put into the food source all corn soy products and canola and a lot of other compounds they get into the food and so we're eating it every day so so it's important for us to know whether uh this was a problem. What we showed with that was there's no effect from direct exposure. It's an exceedingly safe compound. However, it does affect your great grandchildren's uh, disease conditions, and we see a huge amounts of disease in subsequent generations. <clears throat> so, our interest then is to a- analyze sort of things that potentially are causal in doing this. Right now, we're working on a couple of things. One is what's the effect of chemotherapy? On the individuals that sort of survived the chemotherapy and so forth later in life, they now have a child and you're passing on potential epigenetics to that generation, is there a problem? We just don't know yet. And so that would actually reevaluate sort of some of the management of chemotherapy and the patients. Uh, If there was an effect, we could actually do something about it, but we need to know. So that's one of the things we're sort of doing. Also, we're spending most of our time sort of developing a better understanding of the the molecular elements, how this sort of works on a molecular level and in terms of this epigenetic transgenerational inheritance. So we do a lot of studies around that uh, in terms of going forward. <clears throat> um, and I think we're going to see that's what the current sort of activities are. Uh, future things will be how many generations will this go out. And I think some people are starting to look at that in a number of different organisms. Um, what happens if you actually expose each generation to different sets of environmental chemicals or environmental sort of stressors or factors, if those then go for four or five generations, what kind of effects do you have because of different sort of things uh, coming? And each generation in humans has a different exposure. In the 1950s, it was DDT. In the 60s mm. and 70s, it was probably more plastics. Today, it's probably more agricultural chemicals. And so, what if each generation gets exposed? Do do those compound things? Do they just plateau out? Those are things we don't know about, and I think we're going to see studies in that that sort of area as well. But overall, what we're going to see is an incorporation of environmental epigenetics into everything from evolution to disease etiology, and so it's going to help the progression of both those fields significantly. Well,
1: maybe one day we'll have 23 methylation in meat and be able to uh, sequence our epigenetics too.
2: Well, I wouldn't be surprised. (laughs)
1: Well, very good. Mike, this is a great call. I mean, you got a wealth of knowledge, and I appreciate you being on the podcast.
2: Oh, no problem. I appreciate the interest. And, um, and, I, and if you could make sure I get a, a link once you put it all together, that'd be great.
0: You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues.